Welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and we're talking about issues uh, that are relevant to our state and across the country. And the one that we're talking about today is really important in Maine. It's kind of a well-kept secret, except in our rural communities, and that is community health centers, some otherwise called federally qualified health centers. My guest, I'm really honored to have with me today, Roy Blunt, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri. He's a Republican senator. He's been in the leadership around here, very experienced and a great advocate for community health centers. I tell you, in Maine, they serve almost 200,000 people in our state. We're a largely rural state and make a a huge difference. And I take it they're a big deal in Missouri. Well, they are. And, you know, around the country, 27 million people go to community health centers. I think it's the, the one front door to health care that is almost never properly put into the system or evaluated as part of health care. It's not an emergency room. It's primary care. That door is open to anybody, and we can talk more about that later. And in our state, in Missouri, we have very active community health centers also in our cities, in Kansas City and St. Louis and Springfield, where I live. The community health footprint is pretty big, and I think over the years, the hospitals and other health care providers have really learn to appreciate what the community health centers do. That's my impression. At first, there was a little wariness and maybe fear of competition or something, but my sense, at least in in Maine, there's there's a pretty good cooperative relationship. I, I think that's right. I think they have figured out the importance of primary care and the importance of primary care for anybody that wants to take advantage of it. A lot of these health centers have dental care as well right. as other health care. More and more, they're also adding behavioral health care as part of what the community health centers often do. But you know, anybody can go if you have insurance and you could right. go. There's no, there's no right. bar. It's right. not just right. low income. If you could go five category. other places in your community, you could also, with your insurance, you could also go to the community health center if you like the doctors there or like the location there or like the, uh, the dentist there or whatever. If you have insurance, if you are on any government program, you can go to the community health center. If you don't have any of that and you're paying cash, you go to the community health center and that sliding scale, the more you make, the more you pay. But mm-hmm. at any level I've ever looked at that sliding scale, it's an acceptable and manageable scale for people who don't have access any other way. It makes it affordable. And what's right. the number you gave nationally? 20? 27 million that's, people that's go a, to health centers around people. the country. Right. And, and I think anytime we have this debate about who has access to primary health care, whose only option is the emergency room, we have only in recent years begun to even think about how to factor that 27 million into the access to health care number. And it yeah. gets obviously a lot smaller if you put the 27 million sure. people there that can go for all kinds of, uh, all kinds of health. And, and this has always been a bipartisan program is I didn't wasn't George W Bush a big friend of community health centers I think he was he was and I think you're right I think it has been bipartisan now when when I first came to Congress uh, 20 years ago came to the house uh, a little over 20 years ago uh, we had no community health centers in southwest Missouri by the time I left the house 14 years later uh, we had uh, half a dozen community health centers in one congressional district, and they were doing all kinds of things. Dentistry's been added lately, and uh, you know, access to dental care I think is widely underappreciated, both in what it means to individuals, but also what it means to your overall health. Lots of bad things can happen sure. when. Uh, your dental health isn't taken care of, and so we've seen our community health centers step in in many cases. And yeah, we've I've been to those dental chairs as I, well. I've seen the dental chairs in Bangor, Maine, and some of the other facilities, mm-hmm. and it does make a difference. And it's one of the first things that isn't taken care of if you can't afford to have health care. The other piece is that we're going to see, I think, 
and we're starting to see already a shortage of health professionals, particularly in the smaller towns. And I think that's another place where these centers can play a really important role. Well, I do. And, you know, one of the things in some legislation we just passed, one of the things in that legislation not only funded the community health centers for another two years and kept them from going off a cliff, there was actually a cliff built into the Affordable Care Act. And the way it worked out, it's hard to imagine the optimism about that act at the time. But the view was, well, by year five or six, everybody will have insurance. Everybody and so covered. you won't need the community health centers well, to I be didn't funded as that. they are today. So there was about a, a $3 billion cliff built in. And we've managed to keep from going off that cliff every two, couple of years as we extended it. Senator Stabenow from Michigan and I uh, had a bill. I think you were part of that bill right. that extended the funding for another two years. Uh, and the second year even includes a little bit of a funding uh, increase. So a little more than flat funding, but uh, importantly, building well, that bridge. It was a near thing. This budget bill that we just passed that had this funding in it, Right. we were within months of having to close some facilities in Maine. Well, and, and I think what those facilities see too, uh, Angus, is that, you know, the funding ran out September the 30th, and these health centers really run on a business model. So if they want to add a pain clinic with the opioid crisis, they go to the bank and say, we need to borrow money, and here's how we're going to pay it back. And if your funding has run out and you don't know for sure your funding is going to continue, suddenly all of those things are pretty hard to do just to maintain what you want to do. And and also, as uh, you know, I don't think we fully, I fully responded to your question about the providers, but we do have some legislation that we have passed and now extended that gives credit to providers in a special way who want to pay back uh, right. the uh, credit on their, their loans, their loans and, you know. in, uh, by working in a community health center. One of the biggest problems, in fact, the biggest health problem that I've seen in Maine in my adult life is the opioid crisis. It's just ravaging many of our small towns and larger cities. Is that is that a big issue in Missouri? It is. It is. Uh, you know, for reasons that I've never quite figured out, the opioid crisis appears to be moving east to west, and we're sort of on the western edge right mm-hmm. now. Kentucky, which would be one of our eastern neighbors, even Illinois and Indiana have had problems bigger than ours, but our problems seem pretty big to us. I think it's mm-hmm. anywhere in the country, if you're a first responder that's part of a fire department, as many first responders are, sure. uh, the average, I think, day is you're three times more likely to go to a drug overdose than you are to go to a fire wow. if you're that fire department. In my state and in the whole country, and I think in Maine, but it's the number one cause of accidental death is drug overdoses, past car accidents right. now. We're now, lo- we're now losing a person, more than a, one person a day to mm-hmm. overdoses, mm-hmm. which in a relatively small state. That's a lot of people. And, you know, you mentioned mental health services are now starting to be looked at in these health centers. The big, one of the big problems is lack of treatment. And that's another good, good news story out of this funding bill that we just passed is there's additional funds for treatment for uh, mental health, but particularly for opioid problems. Right. And actually some of that was written opioids and mental health, because if you don't have a behavioral health problem, and by the way, one out of four adult Americans, according to the National Institute of Health, has a diagnosable and almost always treatable, one out of four, mental health wow. problem. One out of nine, according to that same agency, has a mental health problem that impacts how they live every day. 
And if you don't have a mental health problem before you have a drug addiction problem, you certainly have one as soon as you get that drug addiction problem. And so, you know, pain clinics, how to deal with pain in different ways, as well as... uh, To deal with it particularly without opioids if possible. Right, right. To look at to look at the alternatives to opioids and also to look at pain in a, in a different way. For a long time, even the federal government was asking patients that were leaving hospitals, did you have any pain while you were in the hospital? Which ironically was an incentive for drugs. It was pretty clear that the answer there was, it was supposed to be, no, I had no pain. Right. So the hospital knows what's on the survey as opposed to what would be about, do you have, did you have any um, unacceptable pain or did you have pain you didn't understand uh, would be the question I think we'd be asking today. And, you know, we ought to look for non-addictive pain medicine, but also be thoughtful about how that medicine is prescribed. Nobody likes to go to the pharmacy an extra time, but when you get 30 pills, when you only need seven, uh, right. a lot of things can happen in that last 23 pills, including being in your shelf for your well, kids or grandkids to find. I've, you know? I've met young people that got addicted because of a football injury and they were given 30 or 60 pills and by the time nobody warned them right and by the time they finished they were hooked and it's tragic i was talking the other day about a cheerleader from springfield missouri 16 years old car accident gets addicted to the medicine she's given after Mm -hmm. the accident at age 20 four years later that 16 year old cheerleader dead of an overdose and there are lots of stories like that and you know not only is that one life when you talk about one life a day in maine right but all of the reverberating other lives that are impacted by losing that father before you should have or losing that child you never would have expected to be at their memorial service, to be at their graveside, has a devastating effect on and, many people that... And it, uh, and it strikes all levels of society. I mean, I, I was at right. a round table on this and sitting next to me was a deputy sheriff. He'd lost his daughter. I mean, you know, solid mm-hmm. middle-class guy who lost his 18-year-old daughter. Well, let's get back. I think the good news is that community health centers are an amazing resource. And in my experience, I've been in large ones and small ones in Maine, and, and they just, they fill a gap. I don't know how it would be filled otherwise. That's right. And, you know, they're also more and more linking up with telemedicine to where you've got the doctor at the community health center, maybe has a direct contact with the doctor at the university hospital 200 or 500 miles away that can, can link that up. And um, I think it is a way that people that wouldn't have access to healthcare otherwise, and particularly primary healthcare, where you go in, you have a checkup, you have uh, your uh, mothers and children, uh, both before babies are born and, and after babies are born. And can save a huge amount of money by right. catching things early. Quite right. often, the expense is in treating something, diabetes, for example, that once it gets too far advanced, it's very expensive to treat, whereas it can be prevented and dealt with. It can be, and I think that's why this primary, this front door to health care, much more important than the last door you've got to run to to try to get there before something really devastating happens or you're already so sick that it's going to take a lot to get you over what might have started out as a cold before you get to the emergency room is pneumonia. Uh, and um, the health centers provide that. The National Health Service Corps that we were talking about otherwise I think we also got in that piece of legislation something that we had in our initial piece, Senator Stabenow and I did, which was to be able to use the health centers as a place where you can get graduate medical education credit. So you're out of medical school, you're doing your residency. One of the options to do some of that 
residency is the community health center. And so all of those are more and more woven in to what I think members of the House and Senate both, as well as the people we work for, have come to appreciate that really 25 years ago, I think these health centers were, if in, if they existed anywhere, they were very fledgling and right. not very accepted by the other health care providers. But I believe you and I have seen all of that change. And um, I was one of the co-founders here in the Senate uh, three or four years ago, of Community Health Center Caucus, mm-hmm. where we occasionally meet and our staffs more often to be sure that we're keeping up with what health centers need to continue to well, be a viable part of that health care. And I want to, you mentioned Senator Stabenow a couple of times because our listeners, all they hear about is how we don't get along. Right. You know, we can't get anything done and that everything is partisan. Here, your Republican Debbie Stabenow is a leading Democrat from Michigan, but we all have worked together on this common problem and had some success recently. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, it just means so much in our all over Maine. But these these centers are, are phenomenal. As I said, uh, 200,000 people in Maine, that's out of a total population of 1.3 million. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That's a big percentage of the population, just like 27 million is a big percentage nationwide. But there are a number of things I think we've seen that as Democrats and Republicans, we look for ways to work together. I, I independence, guess, I guess, too, by the way. And independence, too. <laughs> and uh, I guess the good news is that that doesn't get a lot of attention because it's still not so unusual that it's front-page story. But That's a good uh, point. You know, the bad news is that there's not more of it, and we need to continue to find more things we can do to be sure that the job opportunities are there, that the health care is there, that the infrastructure is there, that the things that people clearly can't do for themselves, in addition to defending the country, they expect people in the Congress to find ways to work together and get those done. And this is a solution that has worked. Right. For sure. Roy Blunt, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you. Appreciate it. We'll be back in a minute with Inside Maine. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Inside Maine. We're talking about community health centers, FQHCs, federally qualified health centers. You can call them what you want. I call them lifesavers. Our next guest is Holly DeYoung. Holly is the administrator of the Eastport Maine uh, Community Health Center, and I've met her. I know the work that they're doing down there. And Holly, we just had a really good session with Roy Blunt of Missouri, who's a Republican senator working with myself and Debbie Stabenow and others. How happy were you when we got the funding done last week? Well, I would to say I was ecstatic on behalf of certainly our health center, but every health center in Maine and every health center in the nation would be an understatement. We truly appreciate the culmination of voices that came to agree on a budget that su- continues to support health centers that both Senator Blunt and you were describing as essential and critical in communities. I would certainly echo that. Well, and, and that's one of the things, I mean, in, in sort of thinking about and visiting with you last summer, you serve a unique niche. I mean, you're not a hospital, but you're not a physician's office. You're sort of in between. Anybody can come. Describe, number one, we talk about 200,000 people in Maine. You serve, what, five or 6,000 in your facility, close to 5,000 each year? We serve just about 5,000 in our community, about 68% of the population in this little neck of down east Maine. Callas to uh, Machias and all the communities in between. We have four primary care providers and four behavioral health counselors, three psychiatric staff, 
four dental staff, including two dentists and two dental hygienists, a podiatrist and a nephrologist, as well as a number of other ancillary services that, that we provide. And you're busy all the time? Absolutely. All and three sites. I was just going to say, you have three sites. You have Eastport. Is there one in Callis as well? So our primary site is in Eastport. We have two satellites, one in Callis, where we provide behavioral health, psychiatry, and podiatry services, and one in Machias, where we provide primary care, behavioral health, and psychiatry, and podiatry. Is it possible to characterize a, t- a typical patient, or are they sort of from all different places and well, I guess, yeah, I could characterize. About 35% of the patients we treat are 65 and older. They're remarkably sick with four or five chronic diseases wow. like diabetes, cardiac disease, hypertension, depression, obesity, kidney failure, and other diseases. Now, are these they, people who, by the way, haven't had treatment in the past or they haven't had a physician, uh, do they come to you? first when all of this is coming together? Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to say that a number of our patients have been accessing services here at Eastport Healthcare since we opened our doors 40 years ago. Wow, that's great. And we have a number of patients who are new to our health center. Our neck of Maine, our little nook here in the corner of the state, is uh, emerging as a retirement community. So we have lots of elders who come from out of state and come to the health center because they prefer to receive services in, in a health center. They know about them from their home state. Great. Yeah, we call that an export industry. They, they live there, and the money comes in from someplace else right. <laughs> every month in the mailbox. That's a good thing. So the funding, I mean, it must have been sort of nerve-wracking because the funding ran out in the fall, and, and you guys just sort of had to wait around while we finally got our act together and got this done. But uh, talk to me about what you were thinking in so, December. Yeah, I, I guess to say that we were nervous and that it was hanging by our fingernails, wondering what would happen, would be an understatement. When you realize how sick people are and your importance in the community and there's a potential that your face will change because the funding changes. It was a a dim prospect for sure. I I will say that we kept hope up all along, kept staff and board and community members apprised regarding what was going on and had them contacting our delegation regularly. Oh, yeah. I I certainly heard. Yeah. I didn't need to be told, but it was great to know that you guys were all out there and reminding us how important this is. Yeah. Uh, We could not be complacent or sleepy in the experience of hoping a budget would be passed. We were for sure focusing on the complete necessity of it being passed in order for us to maintain a, uh, you know, any kind of major planning even that a health center needed to do in order to respond to the health needs of the community were essentially put on hold. Yeah. In September. I mean, you had to do that. That's a business, a wise business decision is to wait. Now, Roy Blunt mentioned that you have patients sort of from all the spectrum of paying, that you have private pay and insurance and I suspect main care, Medicare. What percentage of your budget is of direct federal support versus income from your patients? About 16% of our total operating budget is the federal base grant that we receive. So for that 16%, we're basically leveraging or creating these wonderful facilities in communities throughout Maine that would otherwise have little or no on-the-ground health care. Exactly. Yeah. 
it, you know, may not sound like a big or an important number, but that well, that's the, that's the difference is, between keeping your doors open and not. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, what about telemedicine? Is that part of your facility, or where? Do, that strikes me as an impor, important part of the future of healthcare in Maine, particularly in our small towns. We are beginning to look at telehealth as a as a potential resource for our community, specifically related to telepsychiatry. Our halftime psychiatrist is also a professor at UNE, and uh, to travel up to Eastport every other week for weekend coverage sometimes is difficult to do, when, particularly in the weather months. And so we're looking at telepsychiatry to ensure access to services when the weather is inclement and it's difficult for both the provider and the patients to travel. Well, I've, t- I've been to telehealth facilities in, throughout Maine, and, and I've been told that psychiatry and mental health treatment is one of the things that really works pretty well. People are comfortable talking to a screen, I guess, because all, we all interact with screens all the time, and it does seem to be effective. It's, uh, it's not the same as being in the same room, but uh, it's a heck of a lot better than nothing. Yes, we certainly have that um, level of understanding. And the culture shift, actually, that's happened just in the last couple of years, I think we're so attuned to holding handhelds and looking at screens that it's now somewhat acceptable, where maybe 10 years ago when we had telemedicine in our county, it was not embraced openly, that's for sure. Well, it's very me, different today. Tell me about something that you developed up there, the Community Circle Model for Community Engagement. It's a great title. I understand it's gotten national publicity. Tell me what that's all about. So thank you for noting that. I created Community Circles back in 2011, shortly after I began my position here at Eastport Healthcare, and the purpose was to have a closer connection with the community. It's an important model because it engages the community directly around an important health topic or social topic that's impacting their health. Every circle has an aim, a specific reason for convening. So one circle in particular has been convening every six weeks since 2011, and that's the Integrated Behavioral Health Community Circle. That circle's aim is to improve the system of care here in Washington County for those affected with mental illness and or substance use disorder. It's been a remarkable compilation of voices at the table, including primary care, behavioral health advocates, those in recovery, faith-based educators, state representatives, other agencies like MEHAF, Maine Primary Care Association, NAMI Maine, uh, and I, the list goes on and on. Some of those. You mean you've got we, people sitting around in a circle who all know parts of a problem and they're listening to each other. What an amazing, wonderful concept. Well, the tenant of the community circle model is attentive, responsive listening. And our solution-focused, attentive, responsive listening. I have not walked out of a circle, and I've convened, you know, well over 200 of them over the last eight years. I've not walked out of one circle where someone threw a stone at someone else or there was a stalemate and we didn't come out with some forward movement in some way related to the topic at hand. It's just been a remarkable experience. And these are not strictly professionals. These are community members, patients. Oh, yeah. The, yes. All of those who might have an interest. In, and uh, people people are into it. They come and, and contribute. Well, you know, ironically, Senator, we think we are connected and communicating when we're on our handheld phones and, and are texting folks. And so people yearn to commune to actually have a conversation and be heard in person. What, what's, your, so, what's your cell phone rule when you're in the circle? All cell phones are off. <laughs> I wonder. I figured, that, <laughs> I figured that might be the case. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's an it's a, a common understanding. We don't even have to ask. Folks just do it. They, just they turn do. off their phone. Yeah. Now, tell me how you're dealing with the opioid crisis. We talked about it when I was up there. It's so it's just heartbreaking, and and particularly in these smaller towns. What's your role in in, in dealing with this well, awful problem? Th- through the um, Integrated Behavioral Health Community Circle, we spun out another circle that focused on legislation that was proposed by Senator Maker. Um, oh, Joyce Maker. She was down here. Yes. She was yes. Da- She was my guest at the State of the Union. She spent the I day did. down here. It was wonderful. It was uh, really lovely to see that she had that opportunity. So this circle is focusing on the collaborative system of care in our county that is emerging, and it's actually gelled in a number of areas. It includes primary care, behavioral health, emergency departments, law enforcement, Washington County Jail, faith-based community, active recovery voice also. And we were meeting about every monthly between May and October in preparation for creating a framework that would support some funding that we are hoping comes to Washington County in the form of a pilot. I understand that that there may be a shift in the availability of funds at this point, but we won't be deterred. I can just give you like a summary of some of the things that came out of that seven-month process of meeting. We created a provider training on the new prescribing law in Maine for pain medications. Through the Sunrise Healthcare Coalition, the five health centers and the two hospitals, we created a uniform prescribing policy and a contract for pain management. By the way, do the hospitals view you as competition? I would say no. You know, we, we have a different role than the hospitals. We work together, and hospitals need us. They need us to be providing good care and, you know, with the ability to provide them with essential information when our patients arrive at their door for care. And we need them because people get sick. Emergencies happen. Sure. Well, I, I, um, I interrupted you. You were talking about the progress in the yep. circle. We established a community-based detox model where we can coordinate detox in the community for folks that are interested in getting off opioids, and we have coordinated that with law enforcement. There's a new support role in the community called Recovery Coaches. About 100 of them have been trained in both in Hancock and covering Hancock and Washington County. And in Washington County Jail, through the project, we're creating a bridge to recovery model, which included Healthy Acadia, Aristic Mental Health Services, and Eastport Health Center. Our health center created a substance use recovery program. Let's see. An IOP, or intensive outpatient program, has been set up through Aristic Mental Health Services in both Callis and Machias. It sounds like what you're really working toward is a comprehensive response that involves all the resources that you have in the region. That's, that's that would fantastic. be a perfect way to summarize it. Comprehensive response, exactly. Everybody working together. Well, Holly, I, I want to really thank you for what you're doing. I was about to say it's an irreplaceable asset. I really think it is. I just can't imagine life in Eastport or Bangor. I was up in Brownville, I think, and was stopped yeah. into a center uh, up there. What they're doing in uh, Penobscot is it's wonderful work, and I hope you'll pass thanks along. Those of us here in Washington, you know, we vote on budget bills, and there's this little line that says community health centers, and we we know what that means, but we don't really get the direct impact, and that's what I want to express to you is how appreciated it is. Thank you so much, Senator. We appreciate your voice and and support for sure. Well, I will see you probably on July 4th, if not before. Perfect. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Holly. Thanks for what you're doing, and please pass the thanks on to your wonderful staff.
I will do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it today for Inside Maine. Thank you for being with us. Community health centers are a fabulous resource throughout our state. They make such a difference in people's lives. I'll tell you, in the work that people like me do down here, it's nice to every now and then talk about what's actually going on on the ground and how we are indeed providing some important help. Thanks for being with us, and we'll talk later. Later.